1565, 70-year-old Frenchman Jean-Paul Parisot de Lavalette, or simply Lavalette, had a problem. It's a problem that, well, I think we've all had at one point in our lives. And the problem was this. Ahem. Everyone else sucks. You see, Lavalette was the grandmaster of the Knights Hospitaller, an order of knights that was originally created during the time of the Crusades. Oh, they were tough cookies to be certain, and now they were holding out on the somewhat small island of Malta that was currently under siege by the great navy of the Ottoman Empire. Day in and day out, the Ottomans blasted away at the knights with their utterly massive siege cannons. Fortunately, though, the 500 or so knights, accompanied by a few thousand Maltese militiamen, were able to hold up in three large star fortresses, which gave them time to wait and occasionally launch their own minor counteroffensives. Who were they waiting for exactly? Why, reinforcements, of course, from mainland Europe, an armada large enough to battle the estimated 40,000-strong Ottoman navy. Except the armies of Europe were currently at war with each other during the mind-numbingly politically drawn-out conflicts that arose with the rise of the Habsburgs, which would last for centuries to come. And so, Lavalet had to wait, with the world's most powerful army trying to kill him, while everyone else figured out this most sticky of beeswaxes. So, in short, yes, as far as he was concerned, everyone else sucked. But you know what? That's okay. That's alright. Why, you may ask? Because Lavalet was a 20th level cleric. Welcome to episode 4 of Heroes in History, where we bring history to your character sheet. In today's episode, we take a quick look at the history of the Knights Hospitaller and use it as the gateway to building the Story Cleric class. It's episode 4 of Heroes in History. Bonjour, Kiffint. That's Maltese for, hello, how are you? It is I, Punk Rock AJ, back from the void, as it were. Ugh. You know what? I made a separate mini-sode on this, episode one of The Humble Pie, which hopefully will not be another long-running series, unlike this one. Oh, and I'm late for this episode too, again, but at the last moment, a certain uh, recording opportunity presented itself. I got to do some puppy sitting, which was nice, because I've never owned a dog before. So I was like, aw. So I, I wanted to wait for that to happen. But um, <laughs> uh, if you want to hear me talk about my absence, I can point you in that direction, the episode one of hum- The Humble Pie. Otherwise, let's jump right into today's episode, because as it turns out, this is going to be a bit of a complex episode. Ah, but still, Matt feels good to be back. In today's episode... We are building our first cleric, and while traditionally the cleric is colloquially renowned as the healer class, they are so much more than that, as some of you probably already know. As well, other classes can be potent healers as well. That said, we are going to be embracing the nature of the healer archetype, at least for this first cleric build. As usual, let's go over the history of the class first. In the canon of D&D, the cleric class holds a number of distinctive traits. First of all, the cleric appeared in the original edition of Dungeons & Dragons all the way back in 1974, all the way up to the current 5th edition. Not only that, the class has maintained its original name. In the original edition of D&D, the martial class was simply known as Fighting Man. Magic users were literally called just that, magic users. And a rogue was referred to as a thief. They sometimes still are. So for clerics to have always had the same name is testament to just how clearly they were conceptualized. But there's something more to it. While I've never personally played the original edition of D&D, my understanding is that it's much more focused on dungeon delving. Adventures were presented in complex modules, and man oh man, these modules were absolute meat grinders, meant to absolutely destroy a party. But clerics were given the special ability to heal, thus making them basically required for a standard party. If legend is to be believed, the first cleric player was trying to play a sort of vampire slayer type, in the vein of the classic Hammer horror films, which to my mind means Peter Cushing as Van Helsing and Christopher Lee as Count Dracula. 
Also, clerics were decent fighters who were also blessed with divine magic use. Classes that blend martial and magic are par for the course these days, but I remember reading the third edition of D&D and still being somewhat blown away by the concept of a class that can duke it out with both mace and spells. All of which is to say that the cleric has been rather consistent in terms of moving from edition to edition. We're not quite done with background on this class yet. Out of all the character classes we've looked at so far, the cleric class is perhaps the most directly influenced from the lingering memory of a medieval influence. Clerics are usually portrayed as having armor, and as their name would suggest, are vessels for the divine will of their chosen god. In fact, according to dictionary.com, a cleric is, hold on, let me check, a small half-sized pair of reading glasses, typically, whoa, wait, Wait, hold on. No, no, not that one. Look, they're clergymen, priests, and I guess by extension, possibly even nuns? In the information I found, it appears that Gary Gygax, one of the co-authors of D&D, was directly inspired by the legend of Bishop Odo of Bayeux. Our boy Odo was a warrior in the service of the man we now call William the Conqueror, a mighty warrior of the Norman lineage, a people who were a blend of both Frank and Viking, inhabiting the northwestern coastal region of France that would one day be named after them, Normandy. In 1066, William sailed across the sea and defeated the English army at the famous Battle of Hastings, which led to him becoming the ruler of that land, mostly. England, that is. The Battle of Hastings helped secure the English crown for William and his kin, but also later it set up the dynastic struggles between France and England in the 100 Years' War. Anyways, our boy Oda was renowned for fighting that battle with a mace in hand, as pictured in the Bayeux Tapestry. For those who may not be aware, the Bayeux Tapestry is a massive medieval tapestry that was begun very quickly after the aforementioned Battle of Hastings that depicts the battle as well as the events leading up to it. Check it out online, then go see it in person. Oh, and of course, William the Conqueror is completely worthy of his own build, blah 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 blah. But let's come back to that whole mace thing because it's actually rather specific. Sine effusione sanguinis, which is Latin for without the shedding of blood. You see, there was a belief that the priestly class in the Middle Ages couldn't use bladed weapons that spilled the blood, as it was inconsistent with their Christian beliefs. This probably is, and then totally isn't true. It isn't true in that priests would probably use any sort of weapon on hand to defend themselves. Before the start of the First Crusade in 1096, there were outbreaks of violence towards the Jewish population of Europe, and we have a few accounts of priests actually protecting the Jewish civilians who had found solace inside of their churches, and a few of these accounts, I believe, specifically mention how the priests held up swords against the crusaders, daring them to enter. Although, yes, I suppose that also includes maces, since they are fairly cheap and easy to make. Really, this legend about priests only being allowed to use bludgeon weapons appears to come almost entirely from the legend of Bishop Odo. All that said, though, wow, you wouldn't think people would have a lot to say about maces, but this is actually quite the rabbit hole to fall into. Not only have maces been used in many parts of the world, but they have also been used in all kinds of designs, such as these really, really long maces used in India that warriors would swing from atop war elephants. But maces have also been used in many different religious ceremonies as well, so maybe there is something to it? No, really, the history of maces is an amazing topic worthy of a much longer deep dive, but let's move on to the star of our show, or at least the event that defined him. Sort of. Much like how when I first planned out making a bard build and I went to my initial historical interpretation by going to the man who was literally referred to as THE Bard, when I think of the cleric, well, let's return to that first part of the cleric, that they are renowned as healers. Again, they are not the sole healing class, at least by today's D&D standards, but for the sake of this episode, we are sticking to that original interpretation. And some of the most famous healers of the Middle Ages were the Knights Hospitaller. Who are the Knights Hospitallers, or more simply, the Hospitallers? Well, the Hospitallers were a knightly order that originated during the aftermath of the First Crusade, when several thousands of Europeans left the continent, sailed across the Mediterranean, and in the course of a year managed to conquer the holy city of Jerusalem. The Hospitallers, along with their compatriots, the Templars, were created to help protect Christians making their pilgrimage to the city. There are a few more legends about the origin of the Hospitallers, but the main point is that the term Hospitaller is actually a shorthand for the Order of Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem. 
They are named after John the Baptist, that one crazy dude in the Bible who lived in the woods, ate crickets and honey, baptized Jesus, and got his head chopped off for his trouble. Sometimes it do be like that. As their name would suggest, the Hospitallers were some of the best medics of their time. But much like the aforementioned Templars, they quickly established themselves as potent warriors. Eventually, the Christians were repelled from the Holy Land, following the aftermath of the Third Crusade and their defeat at the hands of Saladin. And this is where, for the sake of our narrative, the stories of the Hospitallers and Templars really begin to divulge. While still a military order, the Templars quickly established themselves as skilled and shrewd bankers, earning the ire of many prominent figures in Europe, not least of all King Philip IV of France, who would eventually issue a decree that led to the death of the Templars. There are lots and lots of crazy legends and myths about the downfall of the Templars. They feature prominently in all kinds of secret history narratives, such as their continued presence in the Assassin's Creed games and the Da Vinci Code. We ain't getting into that here. However, now that it's been summarized, you know, dare I say that it seems like the Hospitallers, though far from modest, appear to have done a much better job of keeping it on the level. Not to jump too far ahead of our story, but the Hospitallers would eventually be disbanded by none other than freaking Napoleon Bonaparte. So they must have been doing something right. The Hospitallers would eventually find their way to the island of Rhodes. In the meantime, the Ottomans had come. Originating with the remnants of the great Mongol Khanate, they truly established themselves with the conquest of the Byzantine Empire and the destruction of the city once known as Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade. Also happening at this time, we see the eventual rise of the Habsburgs, who would become one of the most powerful families to ever inhabit Europe. Actually, let's take another quick aside, because who exactly were the Habsburgs? Like, I love history, obviously, and I had an okay understanding of at least knowing who people like the Ottomans were. They were an Islamic empire descended from the nomadic horse tribes of Asia, who finished off the Byzantine Empire and established the land that would one day become the modern-day country of Turkey. Like, that's fairly straightforward as far as timelines go, but the Habsburgs have always been less well-defined for me, besides being this vague understanding that they were a powerful noble family in Europe. Like, where did they come from? Why were they so powerful? Part of the confusion I have is that a lot of the terminology we have for the Habsburgs appears to be very modern, often spread out very generously. Plus, it's not like there was ever some kingdom called Habsburgia that I can point my finger at and say, aha, that's where they came from. No, the Habsburgs are nothing like that. <sighs> so, I know I say this a lot, but when dealing with the Habsburgs, this really is a story for another day. The rise of the Habsburgs is an extremely complicated tale. Still, for the sake of this episode, I'm going to give a very quick summary of who they were. Yes, the Habsburgs were a noble family of Europe who began their ascendancy to power not through warfare but through political marriages and other political machinations. Originally based in Vienna, Austria, they were often conflated with the Holy Roman Empire, a term originally used to describe the empire ruled by Charlemagne. Despite the association, they were not always the rulers of the empire, but through those previously mentioned marriages, they still wound up at several points ruling most of Europe, barring France, one of their fiercest rivals, England, and the Nordic countries. The fact is, the Habsburg dynasty really is a nebulous term, except that it was a Germanic family that placed many of their members in positions of power throughout the kingdoms of Europe, including Hungary, leading to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as well as the Habsburgian Spain. By the way, they were very, 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 very Catholic. So why exactly did the Habsburgs hate France so much, the, like, third most Catholic place ever? Well, essentially because France recognized that they were a threat. Keep in mind, France is one of the other countries that claims direct heritage from Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor. And so, France and the Habsburgs fought and fought and fought, dragging with them many, many other kingdoms. Their wars would last for centuries. So where were we again? Oh yeah, the Ottomans didn't really care about any of that, and now, you know, I can't help but think, thank goodness. Still, they wandered into Europe, and with France and the Habsburgs and everyone else duking it out between each other in mind-numbing internecine warfare, they definitely had a clear shot. But in order to take on Europe, they had to occupy places that were of strategic importance, like the tiny little island of Malta. If anything, our boys the Hospitallers were one of the more stable elements of this time. 
or at least they would have been had it not been for those pesky Ottomans who drove them out of their island home of Rhodes during the siege of Rhodes in 1522. For reference, Leonardo da Vinci, the star of the first episode of Heroes in History, died in 1519, so this is technically during the Renaissance, but we are quickly approaching the tail end of that era. Anyways, the Siege of Rhodes marks the beginning of the reign of one of, if not, the greatest Ottoman ruler of all time, Suleiman the Magnificent. But, spoilers, he's actually getting his own episode of Heroes in History in the second season, so we're not going to talk about him just yet. Suffice to say, he was a capable and storied king who was not and would not be underestimated in his lifetime, as he led the Ottoman Empire at its most imperial might. So, back to the Hospitallers. Having been kicked out of their island home of Rhodes, they wound up occupying the island of Malta, a fascinating part of Mediterranean culture. It's only about 17 miles long and 9 miles wide. The island of Malta lies north of Libya and south of Italy, and part of its culture, like its language, show an Arabic and Latin influence. The knights were given this island in 1530 by Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, one of the greatest emperors the House of Habsburg ever produced. And what did the Hospitallers have to pay for this island? Lots and lots of gold? No. Why? The knights had to grant Charles V one Maltese falcon a year on All Saints Day. And I don't mean a statue, I mean an actual falcon bird. I mean, that sounds like a good deal to me for an entire island. That said, this is where we get part of the inspiration for one of my favorite novels and movies of all time, The Maltese Falcon. Sherlock Drool's Sam Spade Rules. To the Maltese Falcon, what have you ever given me beside money? Have you ever given me any of your confidence, any of the truth? Haven't you tried to buy my loyalty with money and nothing else? What else is there I can buy you with? Here, they would begin construction of three new military forts, while continuing to harass and commit piracy against the Ottomans. To be fair, the Ottomans were often committing piracy against the Christians, often along the coast of Italy and against military bases in North Africa. Or, to put it another way, they were constantly jabbing at each other, but instead of punches, they were using entire armadas. This would reach a boiling point with the upcoming Great Siege of Malta. Now, while it is a trend to say that Oh, this battle with the Muslims would decide the fate of all of Christendom, as expressed in events such as the Battle of Tours and the Siege of Vienna, we have to be careful. This expression is something of a loaded term, playing into the stereotype of Muslims as invading barbarians. The whole last bastion of Christianity can also feed into extremist Christian mentalities as well. That said, there is something to be said about the Siege of Malta. Remember, it's an island not too far away from the coast of Italy, so to say that the island would make a great launching point for future Ottoman invasions directly into Rome, well, is actually not entirely unfeasible. That's part of the reason why the Ottomans wanted the rocky, falcon-infested island in the first place. However, this is where we finally get to be introduced to the star of our show. John Perisot de Lavalette, or Lavalette, was a Frenchman born in Quercy in the year 1495 to a noble family. Descended from Crusader Knights himself, he would spend the first 20 years of his life in France, only to leave and never come back, to join the Hospitallers themselves, as Lavalette was present during the Great Siege of Rhodes. So, sometimes history doesn't just repeat itself, it bookends itself. And again, even though that battle was a loss, it would grant him familiarity and experience with both the Ottomans and their impressive military technology. For the next 50 years, Lavalette would move from one naval battle to the next, and even be arrested a few times once at the hands of the dreaded pirate and Ottoman corsair Turgut Reish, or Draguts. He would in fact be a slave to Turguts, only to be later freed during a prisoner exchange. So I know we literally just went over this, but let me reiterate the points in La Valette's life in bullet point fashion, just so that we're keeping track. Born a noble in France, possibly in the year 1495, left his home at 20 and never returned, was present at the Great Siege of Rhodes, which marks the mighty reign of Ottoman Emperor Suleiman the Magnificent. The Siege of Rhodes was in 1522, so Lavalette was about 27 at the time. The Hospitallers were granted the island of Malta in 1530 by Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, one of the greatest of the Habsburgs, for the price of a single parakeet once a year. Lavalette would have been around 35. In 1541, Lavalette was arrested and then later became a galley slave to the Ottoman corsair Turgut Reis, but was then later freed. He would have been about 41 years old. Okay, I think that's all. I don't think I missed anything or got anything wrong. 
Nope, nothing. After escaping slavery, Lavalette continued to stay in the Mediterranean and often helped where he could, even becoming the governor of Tripoli in 1546, providing aid to the often vulnerable city. Lavalette kept moving up until, in 1557, he was elected as the 49th Grand Master of the Knights of St. John, the Hospitallers, at 62 years of age. Heck yeah, you go, dude! And, you know, while interesting things certainly happened here, let's speed things up just a bit. In the year of 1565, the Ottoman forces really, really wanted the island of Malta as a way to tackle Rome. However, the crafty grandmaster, La Valette, had used spies ahead of time to learn that the Ottomans were indeed on their way. Utilizing the native populace, La Valette constructed three military star forts and bided his time. He also ordered all the food to be harvested and all the wells poisoned as a way to starve out the Ottomans and ordered the island evacuated. The native Maltese were not happy about this, BT dubs, as they saw the knights as brutes, but they were united both by their Catholic faith and not wanting to get their heads cut off by scimitars or being turned into slaves. Finally, on May 18th, a massive Ottoman fleet of about 40,000 attacked the island held on to by around 500 hospitalers and a few thousand extra militiamen, who were still very important. By the way, one of the leaders of this Ottoman fleet was Turgut Reich, who was the guy who had actually captured Lavalette and turned him into a slave for a short while. Between this tidbit and the fact that this was something like the Siege of Rhodes, take two, and you realize how personally dramatic this event really was for both the Christians and the Ottomans. For his part, Lavalette had to wait, as he had been assured that Christian reinforcements were on their way. Hmm. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So now we're going to give a blow-by-blow blow of the entire siege, right? Well... No... Okay, yes, I know I'm coming across as kind of cowardly, but for an event like this, I do sincerely believe that the listener should do a bit of homework and try to look up a visualization of the siege itself. Unlike the night raid of Vlad Jepish, the star of our first barbarian build, we actually have a great understanding of the battle. We have a very solid blow-by-blow blow of what happened on the first day, the second day, and so on until it ended. That said, here are a few highlights. Well, it's a bit anticlimactic, but Turkit Reish, again also known as Dragut, was killed very early on in the conflict, possibly from friendly cannon fire. A disappointing end to one of the greatest and most powerful pirates to have ever lived. The knights didn't just hang out in their fortresses, but also conducted many night raids and other such counter-movements. They also used the ocean to their advantage. At one point, several knights armed with nothing but the daggers in their teeth swam underneath the light of the moon, snuck abroad one of the Ottoman ships, conducted a fearsome raid where they just murdered oh so many Ottoman sailors before leaping back into the sea and swimming back to their forts. Not to denigrate the Ottomans, though, who utilized their most famous soldiers, the Janissaries. These were men who had been kidnapped at birth from Christian and Jewish families, turned into slaves, and were raised as supremely deadly shock troops. Super fascinating soldiers, they were put to great usage throughout this and many, many other battles. The Ottomans attempted to tunnel underneath the city and sap its walls, so the knights had to dig counter tunnels. This led to the eventual capture of Fort St. Elmo. The soldiers stationed there begged Lavalette to let them retreat to safety, but he refused. Once the Janissaries and Ottomans entered the fort, they killed every knight occupying the inner walls. This led to one of the more grim moments of the siege. After the capture of Fort St. Elmo, a few knights were taken and beheaded, put on mock crucifixes, and floated across the bay to the other fortress, and their heads were put on pikes for the survivors to see. And for the survivors, the beheading of these men had an extra level of salt to it, as the hospitaller's namesake, John the Baptist, was also beheaded. In response to this, Lavalette took the remaining Ottoman prisoners, beheaded them, placed their heads in cannons, which were then fired back at the Ottomans, who were occupying the desecrated fort, a pyrrhic victory to be sure. Now, part of the way the knights were able to survive as long as they did is because, no joke, apparently, they might have found an underground stream of fresh water underneath one of their forts. Like, how lucky is that? Eventually, Europe finally got their act together and said, Hey, those guys out on this little island are kicking all kinds of butt. Maybe we should stop bickering like extremely petulant children and help them out. 
Finally, on the 7th of September, a relief force of around 8,000 men finally arrived, smashed the Ottoman Turks, and lifted the siege, which fully ended on September 11, 1565, lasting for just under a full four months. It was a grueling, grueling siege, where the knights put not just their knowledge of warfare, but of burgeoning medical practice to effective use, winning against tremendous odds. The aftermath was just what the Christians needed. The Great Siege of Malta marks the end of Suleiman the Great's reign, as he later died in 1566. The victory of the knights who had been seen as relics from the medieval age really did help the Christian kingdoms get their act together, at least for a spell, and they began to more fully unite against the Ottoman presence, winning a few key battles and halting their advance into mainland Europe. And then they started fighting each other again for some more time. They started fighting each other, is what I meant to say. The kingdoms of Europe. <laughs> um, as for the star of our show, well, Lavalette became the most famed Grandmaster of the Knights Hospitaller. To commemorate the great victory, in 1566, he laid the first stone of what would one day become the city of Valletta, the capital of modern-day Malta, obviously named after him. In 1568, Lavalette suffered a stroke while praying and passed on soon after, at the age of 73. The inscription on his tomb reads, Here lies Lavalette, worthy of eternal honor, he who was once the scourge of Africa and Asia, and the shield of Europe, once he expelled the barbarians by his holy arms, is the first to be buried in this beloved city, whose founder he was. The knights themselves would end up becoming quite dispersed throughout Europe, sometimes welcomed, sometimes not. But, as he alluded to earlier, the knights would have a continued presence on the island of Malta until the arrival of one Corsican ogre in 1798. The young Bonaparte ended up conquering the island as part of his expedition into Egypt. After that, there were a few successor orders, but none of them are truly descended from the original Knights of Malta. Malta itself would then go on to become the site of a few more future sieges, including one famous battle in World War II. Still, there are a few modern-day groups that claim descent nonetheless. Alright, let's talk extra sources. Starting with the man. Lavalette has been an occasional figure in literature, most prominently in the 1997 piece of historical fiction, Angels and Iron by Nicholas C. Prata, wherein he's the main character. As for the Knights Hospitaller, while not as famous slash infamous as their Templar brethren, they nonetheless occasionally show up in historical fiction every now and then. I swear there's quite a few computer games here and there where the Hospitaller show up as a healing class, or at the very least, there's a modern mech unit that has the name Hospitaller or something to that effect. The same can be said of the Siege of Malta itself, as it has shown up in a number of books and video games. No movie though, which is a bit of a bummer. In time though, in time. If the knights are to stand any chance, they will have to rely on simple chemistry. So Michael, during the siege in 1565, this is what these guys had. This is basically the gunpowder they would have used then. The uh, fuel for the gunpowder is charcoal, ordinary charcoal. In addition to charcoal, gunpowder combines sulfur and potassium nitrate, also known as saltpeter. Liquid is added to stabilize the mixture, sometimes a surprising one. This was basically a wet mix of powder. You so they would mix these components yes. together and then wet, wet it down. Yes. Water? Water, wine was preferred, and sometimes even urine was used. <laughs> they actually used yes, urine for this? Now it's High thing. technology right there. Funny thing about it was the urine of a wine drinker was preferred to the urine of a beer drinker. <laughs> and if you could get it, a bishop's wine drinking urine. That's the best stuff. Okay. So the urine of a wine drinking bishop makes the best gunpowder. Keep that in mind. Alright, so let's go over our goals for this build. First of all, as a reminder, clerics are capable warriors who can duke it out in armor, can cast divine magic, and are excellent healers. Thus, our main goal for this first cleric build is to build the most box-standard prototypical cleric we possibly can. However, before you start reaching for the loaf of wonder bread, get yourself ready because this build is going to get some Mediterranean flavor and spiciness. You see, the Knights Hospitaller were also pirates, at least they were at this time, and conducted many sea-based raids on their foes. So we're going to make sure our knight gets something in the way of swimming skills. Not only that, but quick reminder, the Knights also used firearms at this time, including large bore muskets, flintlock pistols, and grenades. 
which we're going to accomplish by reflavoring longbows and crossbows. Now, I know that there is some pushback out there against using bows in this fashion, especially, especially since the stats for proto-firearms exist in the Dungeon Master's book. However, I don't know if your team is going to include those in their game. As such, I need to make sure I am being as setting neutral as possible. But as it turns out, I don't think I need to worry so much about this. You see, again, with the Siege of Malta, not only do we have a great handful of primary sources, but we also have a great number of artifacts from the battle itself, located at the Palace Armory of Malta. We even have the Armor of Lavalette himself, but as attested to in the historical record, crossbows were especially heavily used by the knights, essentially because at a certain point, gunpowder became so spare that they had to use crossbows, essentially judging them up from the top of their refrigerators, so to speak. So let's focus on that. This is in addition to, well, all of the fire-based weapons that the knights used. You see, the Ottoman Turks wore lots of loose flowing robes, and the knights honed in on the fact that these clothes were especially prone to becoming inflamed. So the knights created a bunch of custom fire-based weapons, such as these huge torches that spewed heat known as trumps, as well as these essentially like these fire hoops, these fire wheels. If you can find it, there's an episode of a History Channel show from 2009 simply called Warriors, starring Terry Shepard. Now, where there's a great visualization of this. Now, I know some of you out there, Brandon, Brandon, have thoughts on the reputed veracity of the History Channel. Actually, there were a slew of these types of shows at this time, including one of my favorite bad TV shows of all time, Deadliest Warrior. Warriors, to my mind, was very up and down, and I sometimes didn't buy the host of Warriors as a TV presence, but I have to say, the episode dedicated to the Siege of Malta might have been the best episode of this show, and not only does it include a presentation of the aforementioned torches, but also what might be the best realization of these fire wheels. Check it out if you can. Point being, the knights were also masters of fire. Oh, and this is kind of a quick aside, but the Hospitallers also had really cool outfits, these bright, colorful things that are very renaissance. Like, obviously in today's world, you want to wear camo if you're going to be doing any sort of combat because it blends in with the environment. Still, if there's one thing someone can miss about medieval warfare, it's that the outfits and uniforms were so much more diverse in appearance. We're romantic side coming in three, two, one. <sighs> so, in summary, our goals are... Building a base but effective cleric includes swimming skills. Focus on delivering fire damage. And again, we are using the venerable but still potent Grandmaster Lavalette as our base for this build. Oh yeah, venerable. He's old. At 70 years old, it's probably safe to say that Lavalette acted primarily as a general for his forces, rather than as a frontline fighter. At the same time, the point of this show is to try to build people from history as accurately as possible in D&D. Hmm. Well, we actually can work around this during the build, as you'll soon find out, and build a character that won't be suffering from any strange rules handicap. Ultimately, though, playing an older character in D&D is more of a flavor thing. You can totally play a level 1 character in D&D who is a 60-year-old retired grandma seeking adventure and mostly not have it affect the stats too definitely. Which is to say, it is a question of acting and uh, playing a role, uh, role-playing, as it were. Anyways, here we go. For our stats, we're going to use the standard package. We're going to put a 15 in Wisdom. This is the core trait clerics use for their divine spellcasting. It needs to be high. Also, Medicine is a Wisdom role, which is most appropriate. 14 in Charisma. You are of a noble lineage, and you are a Grandmaster to your order. You are leading your troops through one of the grandest sieges in history. While Charisma isn't always the most important build for a cleric, it certainly is for you. 13 in Dexterity, our first physical stat, and this is where we start to address your age. While clerics are potent martial warriors, you are now a spry old man, and we aren't going to be focusing on your strength. This is fine though. Dexterity is used for ranged weapons, which you are an expert at using. Not only that, but the key sword of the Knight's Hospitaller was the Rapier, which is a finesse weapon, meaning it can be used with either strength or dexterity, so this is fine. 12 for Constitution. You live to a ripe old age for a guy who fought in one of the most war-torn eras the Mediterranean has ever seen. 10 for Intelligence. Frankly, I'm still kind of learning the nature of how to use intelligence and the nature of 
war roles within D&D. Still, while you weren't inventing anything, you had to figure out how to manage your resources and know where to place your forts. And here comes one of the most controversial choices for this build, but an 8 for strength. Dun dun dun! Again, this is where we continue to address your age. Your ability to use your armor comes from your lifetime of military training rather than the fact that you are in the prime of your life. Ultimately, what sealed the day for this stat's placement was trying to picture a 70-year-old man trying to lift himself up a wall only to fall on and break his hip. Um, yeah, we're putting this at 8. We are sticking with Variant Human, put one point in Wisdom and one point in Dexterity, taking them to 16 and 14 respectively. For your first feat, take the Inspiring Leader feat. While you become truly legendary after this siege, it's important that you begin this battle as the leader your men need, not after. The Inspiring Leader feat allows you to give a rousing 10-minute speech to your comrades, up to 6 within 30 feet of you, and give them a temporary HP boost based on your Charisma modifier. This is always a good feat, but at lower levels, when every battle is a challenge, it might be especially valuable. Also, DMs don't actually make your players do a 10-minute speech. For background, we actually have a few different choices. We can go with the noble or knight backgrounds to play up the fact that you actually are a noble, and if you choose the knight background, you'll actually get a few lackeys to help you carry your things. However, we're going to go with the sailor background. I settled on this because, while similar, I thought the pirate background's feature of bad reputation, letting your character get away with minor offenses, wasn't as applicable. The marine background also works very well, letting you hold up to forced marches better, but you're not marching, you're withstanding against a siege. With the sailor background, you also get an extra tool proficiency, the tool being navigator's tools. Anyways, yeah, with the sailor background, you get skill proficiencies for athletics and perception, along with the navigator's tools and water vehicles. You get the ship's passage feature, allowing you to find safe passage with ships for you and your companions, but really, feel free to mix and match as you see fit. I mean, I only yeah, mostly know what I'm doing. This kind of answers the goal of our swim skills. Kinda. From your normal list of skills, take medicine, obviously, and insight to help guide you with how to move your troops during the battle. For equipment, take a mace, scale mail, and your choice if you want to take the crossbow spear or a rapier, all three are weapons used by the knights during the siege. Take a priest's pack, a shield, and a holy symbol, a cross in your case. Alright, time to choose our basic spells. We begin with three cantrips of our choice. Take resistance to give you another way to encourage your troops in combat, sacred flame as your first fire attack, and spare the dead as it would help stabilize your injured troops. For first spells, take Command, Cure Wounds, Create Water, in reference to how the knights found an underground stream of fresh water, and Sanctuary. You can choose an ally and cast a ward on him. If an enemy attacks the warded ally, they must make a Wisdom save. If they fail, they have to choose a new target or else their current attack or spell fails. We also get to choose our Divine Domain, and really, there's no other choice here other than making Lavalette a Cleric of the War Domain. At level 1, you get Divine Favor. After a quick prayer, and you can give your attacks an extra 1d4 of divine damage for a minute. The other spell is Shield of Faith. After choosing a creature of your choice, you can surround it in a shimmering field, granting it a plus 2 bonus to their AC. We also get proficiencies with martial weapons and heavy armor. At first level, we get the first bonus feature of War Priest. After you make an attack, you can make one weapon attack as a bonus action. Not any attack, just a melee weapon attack, that is. The number of times you can use this is dependent on your Wisdom modifier, minimum of 1. When you finish a long rest, you regain all the usages of this ability. At level 2, along with the normal boost in health, we get the famous Cleric ability to channel divinity, where your mighty god grants you the ability to fuel your magic into awesome effects. For this first time, you get the ability to turn undead, bringing up your holy symbol and whispering a few prayers to censure the undead. Any undead sucker within 30 feet of you must make a wisdom saving throw. If it fails, it's turned for one minute or until it takes any damage. What does it's been turned mean? Well, in summary, a turned creature is really scared and is trying to get as far away from you as possible. As a war cleric, you also get a bonus feature to your channel divinity, Guided Strike. You can add plus 10 to your attack roll, and you can state this after you make the roll, but not after your DM tells you whether the attack has hit. We get one more first level spell, and eh, just take Bless, letting you grant a small bonus to a minimum of at least three of your comrades. 
The Grandmaster of the Knights Hospitaller is still a holy man in addition to military commander, so it's important that you take a few spells like this. At level 3, we get... nothing. Except for spells. One more first level spell, take Inflict Wounds, allowing you to deliver necrotic damage on a melee attack. We also get two second level spells. Take Continual Flame, which lets you choose an item and cause a small fire the size of a torch to sprout forth from it. That can't be put out or extinguished, only hidden or covered. You also get Enhanced Ability, which lets you choose from a number of special effects, so I'll let you read it yourself. Oh, and we get two more bonus weapons, uh, two more bonus spells from being a War Priest. We get Magic Weapon, letting you turn a non-magical weapon into a magic weapon with a plus one bonus attack bonus to attack and damage rolls. And Spiritual Weapon, letting you create a spectral weapon of your choice that can add force damage to your attack. At fourth level, we can take a feat. Take the Crossbow Expert feat. You ignore the loading property, being in 5 feet of range doesn't impose disadvantage on attack rolls, and when you use the attack action and attack with a one-handed weapon, you can use a bonus action to attack with a hand crossbow you, that you are holding. We can take one more cantrip, take mending as a way to help your soldiers fix their armor, and one more second level spell, take prayer of healing as another way to help you take care of your very hardworking soldiers. At 5th level, our proficiency increases to plus 3, so just as you need to. The main thing you get here is the Destroy Undead ability, which allows you to destroy any undead creature that is at a half level for their challenge rating. We get two third level spells, take Sending as a way to send a psychic message of 25 words or less to a creature you are familiar with, as a way to beg the other European kingdoms to please, 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 please send more troops, and Mass Healing Word as a way to really help heal more of your troops. Um, only six that is. We also get another pair of free bonus spells. Take Crusader's Mantle, creating this magic aura that can increase your allies' attacks, and Spirit Guardians, letting spectral angels surround you. Enemies that try to attack you have their speeds halved and must make a Wisdom save throw or else take radiant damage. Getting a free spell like Crusader's Mantle is part of the reason why War Priest just worked for this build. At 6th level, you get the ability to now use Channel Divinity twice before a long rest. Additionally, you get another feature from being a War Priest. War God's Blessing. It works very similar to Guided Strike. When a creature within 30 feet of you makes an attack action, you can grant that creature a plus 10 bonus. You get one more spell, Tick Revivify. If a creature of your choice has died within one minute, you can touch and bring it back to life with one hit point left. At 7th level, you get nothing. Again. You get Freedom of Movement and Stone Skin as bonus spells. Freedom of Movement lets a creature of your choice not be affected by terrain and spells that would affect the speed of that creature fail. You also get one fourth level spell, take Guardian of Faith. You summon a large spectral guardian holding a sword and shield emblazoned with the symbol of your faith. This guardian can be cast over a specific place and any creature that comes into the space will be attacked. At eighth level, take the Observant Feet. Your Wisdom score increases by one, you can now lip read but like super well, and you get a plus 5 bonus to your passive wisdom and intelligence scores. We can destroy undead at first level, and we get another divine domain feature. This time, it's divine strike. Once on each of your turns, you can choose to give your weapon divine energy. Kind of makes me think of a lightsaber, yeah? We get one more fourth level spell, take divination. After burning some incense and other stuff, you can send a question directly to your deity, in this case the DM. The DM chooses how to respond. At ninth level, it's another nothing level, but your proficiency bonus increases to plus 4. We get one spell for 4th, take Stone Shape. If you come across a large chunk of stone, you can shape it to any way you want, perhaps possibly as a way to repair holes in the fortress walls. And now, 5th level. Take Mass Cure Wounds as a way to really heal up to 6 creatures of your choosing. Oh wait, we also get 2 more bonus spells. Take Flame Strike, which causes a huge column of divine fire to come down from the sky, causing both fire and radiant damage. Oh, and Hold Monster, where a creature must make a save throw against your wisdom or be paralyzed. Though I have to say, I rather like the synergy of spells here. Stone Shape can help with the fortress, Mask Cure Wounds can help with the troops, and Fire Strike can help with the baddies. All three spells are really covering our core strength as a build. Oh, and Hold Monster. We also get Hold Monster. At 10th level, we get Divine Intervention. It sounds similar to Channel Divinity, but it's actually very different. With Divine Intervention, you can call on your deity to intervene on your behalf when your need is great. This is kind of a strange ability. 
You describe the assistance that you need, and then roll a percentile die. If it lands on a number that is equal or lower than your cleric level, the roll passes. The nature of the help is dependent on your DM. If it succeeds, then you can't use this feature again for 7 days. Otherwise, you have to take a long rest. At 20th level, this ability auto-succeeds. Keep in mind, this is different from the divination spell, as with that spell, you are merely asking for advice, whereas in this one, your DM is literally altering the game in your favor. One more cantrip, take Thaumaturgy, there's a bunch of minor effects. Another 5th level spell, take Raise Dead. Wait, what? Yep, this spell is pretty much what it sounds like. You raise a creature that has been dead for up to 10 days, with 1 HP, with minor wounds closed, and poisons removed. Don't get quite too excited though. It doesn't remove curses or return missing limbs, meaning if the creature has died from getting its head scimitared off, the spell automatically fails. Oh, and they suck at everything, suffering a negative 4 modifier to basically anything that they do for a few days. Still, you can bring people back to life, pretty cool. At 11th level, your destroy undead ability is now for undead creatures that are at CR2. We also get our first 6th level spell, take Find the Path. As long as it is a defined place and is on your plane of existence, you can find the shortest, though not necessarily safest, way there. I like to think of this spell as possibly being used by you to help counter-tunnel any Ottomans trying to sap your fortress walls. At 12th level, we can choose to take either a feat or increase an ability score. While of course I think choosing a feat is great, I think we really do just need to focus on increasing our wisdom, as it will make all of our spells more powerful. We'll talk about this more later. This makes our Wisdom 18, and for spells, actually we don't have any extra spells to take. Huh. After talking about new spells on every level, this feels weird? Oh, and that actually kind of sucks for us? At 13th level, we don't get anything. Our proficiency bonus is now at plus 5, and for our first 7th level spell, take Firestorm for oh so much. Fire damage! Spoilers for the end of our build. While it's tempting to take Resurrection now, we're going to wait and take True Resurrection for our 9th level spell. At 14th level, we get Destroy Undead, challenge rating 3. That's it, that's all. At 15th level, we get 0, Silch. We don't get anything necessarily unique, but we do get our first and only 8th level spell. Oh gosh, that means we have to be super careful with what we take. Well, as tempting as Earthquake or Holy Aura is, I'm actually going to choose Control Weather. Why? Well, it's an island, it's a siege, and you'll want to have the weather be in your favor at all times. Maybe this is a way you can help your allies back on mainland Europe assemble their armies just a wee bit faster. Come on guys, come on guys, come on guys, come on! At 16th level, we can increase one of our abilities, put it in Wisdom, otherwise that's kinda it. Our Wisdom score is now at 19, don't worry, it's about to get much more interesting. 17! 17! We're at the 17th level! We can destroy Undead Challenge Rating 4, and we get a new Divine Domain feature. Ah yes, as War Priests, we become an Avatar of Battle. And it's so simple. Simple, but oh so effective. We get resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from non-magical weapons. That's awesome! And oh, whoa, we get to pick our first and only 9th level spell. Take True Resurrection. Now this is the good stuff. You can bring anyone back to life who has been dead for a maximum of 200 years, and they return completely healed, all curses removed, limbs returned, even a new body if it got destroyed in the last siege. Oh, and our proficiency bonus is now at plus 6. Level 17 really is one of the best ones for a cleric. At 18th level, we can now channel divinity 3 times before a long rest. For 19th level, we can take one last ability score improvement or a feat. Well, let's put that last ability score into our Wisdom, finally capping it. We get one more 6th level spell, take Hero's Feast. While we're not at level 20 yet, let's go ahead and congratulate our troops with this spell. You create a magic feast that takes an hour to prepare. After everyone's done eating and an hour has passed, the people who ate up to 12 have a few bonuses and even have their max HP increased. That's crazy. For 20th level, our final level, our Divine Intervention ability has now been improved. It succeeds automatically, no roll required, though we can still only use it once per day. We also get one last 7th level spell, Make It Divine Word, which has a few different effects. Alright, we finished. Let's go over the strengths and weaknesses of this build. As a 20th level War Domain Cleric with maxed out wisdom, we're a very good fighter, able to deliver a very solid fire and radiant damage, the latter being one of the best damage types in the game. As far as a Divine Spellcaster goes, we have plenty of great healing options, 
in even a few ways to change the environment to our favor, from messing with the fortress walls, changing the weather, and having a few ways to create wide areas of effect. As far as leadership goes, well, you're mostly going to have to be relying purely on your charisma, but even then, you have a few different ways to boost your soldiers' stats and rally them together, making you a great team player. Oh, and you have true resurrection! True resurrection! The swimming part isn't the biggest win, but our background at least helped address that. As far as weaknesses go, hmm... Well, with our low strength, we're going to be prone to getting pushed around a lot and not being able to carry much. That may not sound too bad, but consider that clerics are meant to be martial fighters. Our weak strength is not great. Additionally, we really don't have much in the way of health. Khan was not one of our higher stats, and we didn't invest anything into it. Hopefully you'll have rolled better or even took the tough feat, which really is one of those core feats that everyone should just take, which leads to the discussion of a few alternative feats you could take. I really like the healer feat, giving us proficiency with healer kits and then some, which would have been extremely in character. But as a cleric, we're already going to be chock full of healing spells, so I passed on it. This feat is great for someone who doesn't have any healing options. Additionally, I also really like the gunner feat, which would have been very appropriate for this build, but again, I don't know if your DM will allow guns in your campaign, so this feat was also passed. Normally, I prefer playing to character rather than any sort of power building, but if you're feeling like really playing the part, take those feats. Overall, this build really is perfect for being at the top of the fortress at the final sanctum of a siege. You can command and take care of your troops, and if the enemies manage to make it this far, you still have a few ways of defending yourself. That's where you'll really shine. Otherwise, maybe let some of the younger guys go about the heft of the adventure. As far as using the Great Siege of Malta goes, well, you really could use it and other similar events as either a stepping stone in an adventure or probably more of a mini-campaign, as I think it'd be hard to make a long-form campaign that lasts for years around a single siege, though anything is possible. To that end, though, I recommend just copying the Great Siege of Malta wholesale. DMs, stress the mood here. The enemy is at the doorstep and they are looking for any way to get past the walls, and they are not afraid to be sneaky and use spies to get past your defenses. Food should be spare, and the tone desperate for the help that is hopefully coming, the who knows when. For a song to help get you in the mood for playing La Valette and experiencing the Siege of Malta, hmm, well, how can I say... Yeah, the song is fire! Either by Jimi Hendrix or Red Hot Chili Peppers, it's perfect. As far as a riddle for our next build, our first druid build, well, here it goes. Look at those two lads adventuring. Who shall beat the gal a-helping him? Alright, that's the end of the episode. Woo! That took a while, like a long while. Oi! But hopefully I'm back on track and episode shall be on a normal basis again. Special thanks to just any of my listeners for your infinite patience. Special thanks to BT Newberg and Rachel Westhoff for the fantastic art. Go ahead and check out Newberg's podcasts, Dead Ideas and History of Sex podcast. They are both fantastic. If you have any questions or comments, please send them my way at punkrockhapodcasts at gmail.com. And remember, the die is mightier than the sword.